Hey guys, welcome to Narcoleptic Customs Podcast, episode 46. Today we have Billy Godbold of Comp Cams, the man himself, the legend, Mr. Valve Train Technology Guru. I don't even know what else to say. I want to say thanks to Aaron Mick for helping us get all of this together. Um, I've been working through Aaron. I've been working with Aaron for a long time on uh, Comp Cams orders and things like that. And then he helped us get Billy on here. Guys, this, he is a nuclear physicist, y'all. He's super smart, and what's great for us car folks and the automotive industry is that he looks at things differently. He sees things in a, uh, in a way that he understands that nobody else does. I don't know. Somebody else probably does, too. But uh, he learned from some of the best. Some of the names he drops in the podcast are huge names you've heard of, and the cool thing is the reason he is with comp is because his wife and first child wanted to be closer to her parents and uh, that's why they moved to memphis so we're so grateful for that lady <laughs> and uh, that child and that timing that came along so i'll let him tell his story he talks about growing up and kind of how he ended up in cars and how he made his little john boat go faster and then tells us kind of what the future is for comp and uh, and what the Edelbrock merger and things like that means. So, all right, guys, here we go. Thanks a bunch. Yeah. All right, guys, I'm so excited to have Billy with us today. This is really a, uh, a huge step for the podcast, but also it's going to help a lot of our listeners understand when their, uh, their significant other or their buddies are talking cam specs and uh, valve train technology and all that kind of stuff. So, but I do want to ask you one question right out of the gate, and I need you to be as honest as you can in your position. Um, did you get into this and do the level of stuff you do just because you like to hear the chop of a cam? <laughs> <laughs> well done. Um, you know, you're probably not totally off of it. You know, um, when I was a small kid, you know, I would probably – I had a boat when I was like less than 10 years old. And by 12 years old, I'm going across the lake and I'm playing with the idle mixture and I'm tapping on the mag to try to make it go faster. But, you know, I loved engines from the time I was little. But the first time, you probably heard that song Copperhead Road. You know, mm-hmm. about I still remember, you know, that the rumbling sound when him and my uncle turned the engine down. You know, um, when I was in my teens, some of my cousins and some of my friends had hot rods. and before I had a driver's license, they were taking me to the drag race. And there's something about the smell of race gas and the, the sound of a, of a drag race engine that if you don't love that, you're probably in the wrong industry. So <laughs> no, I didn't totally get into it that reason, but it didn't not, it didn't play zero role either. That's awesome. So when I, when I do some research for this, I, I look at uh, your LinkedIn profile and your technical title, uh, whenever you updated your LinkedIn last, was Valve Train Engineering Group Manager for Comp Cams. Uh, that sounds really high tech. So, <laughs> can can you give us uh, for the folks that we hit, that are uh, coming into this, what does that mean? Well, you know the comp the comp performance group that's now the Edelbrock Group. You know we're mixing with Edelbrock. Um, we used to call them pirate ships and you know, like the, each version of engineering had its own little pirate ship that went and did its own thing. And um, 
I was fortunate enough to kind of take over one of the pirate ships and it was the one I wanted. You know, it was the one that made bumps on sticks. And um, so after a while, you not just become the bump designer, you become the valve spring designer, and then you kind of get something into rocker arms. So basically there's a group of engineers here at Comp Camps that work on nothing but valve train parts. You know, so there's a very good team, a team of guys. And they do some amazing stuff. And what it means to be the valve train engineer group manager at Comp Camps is that everything good that a couple of hundred people do, everything they do well, everything they do with excellence, I get full credit for that. <laughs> um, it also means whenever anything gets messed up, I get full blame too. So the streets, it's, it's a neat deal. I can't, I really can't think of anything in the performance industry that I would rather do than to be over bow train development for competition camps. It is. That's awesome. We have, we have the coolest products. We have the best people. We have the, the very first person that, that we hired at comp camps is a guy named Kenny Arendale. And he's a cam grinder here. You know, it's like we started a cam company. Guys are like scratch they go, what do we need? Well, we need somebody to grind cams. Okay, let's hire this guy. He can grind cams. So <laughs> you know, I'm employee 4,000 something. We probably had 50,000 employees over the whatever your history of the thing. We still have employee number 0001. So, wow. So when I say that there's no place I'd rather work and there's no better group of people I mean, like literally we have people here that have been since the foundation of the company and they love this company. That's awesome. Our customers, they love this product. And yeah, I, I kind of like my job. I don't want to be promoted. <laughs> I don't want to be kicked down. I don't want to be promoted up. I'm really happy. Let, let me do this little fiefdom because it's become that's great. Ship to kind of looks more like a cruise ship now, but Hey, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So let's tell everybody kind of how you got, uh, like what your path is to there. Because it doesn't, you don't just walk in one day and do that. So no, no, it was a it really wild. You know, it, it's a wild thing. Like I kind of led into that. I grew up with a passion for engines. You know, that I'm a farm boy from Tunica, Mississippi. So I was around agriculture equipment my whole life. Had motorcycles as soon as I had train wheel off boat bicycles. Had boats. Had everything you can imagine. Um, when I was a kid, my dad would put me in his boat as like a playpen. Somehow I got a hold of his tools and like had the carburetor off the engine in the inboard boat when I must have been five or six years old. You know what I mean? It's like you never got used to that back for a playpen again. But um, so I had this passion for hands-on, but um, you know, you have to understand I was a really bad student as an elementary student. Like I, I, I failed third grade. I didn't do really good until like somewhere around middle school or high school, I started like making the best grades in the class in math and sciences by like a lot, you know, geometry. I didn't miss anything that whole year. Wow. Like no homework, no tests, no quiz. I just didn't miss anything. You know, it's like, and that wasn't me. You know, everybody has different strengths, different weaknesses. You know, people call mm -hmm. them gifts, you know, and like, I'm really good at math and science. So it's okay. Well, what do you do if you're really good at math and science? Well, you study physics and it was fun, you know? Um, so I went, Went to Rhodes College, um, you know, basically, you know, um, won the physics department award there, was awarded a PhD fellowship to Florida State, um, was brought into the nuclear group there. I finished my comps, which is the last hurdle before the PhD. But about that time, something in Texas happened, the super, superconducting super collider. 
that big system in Texas was basically the funding was taken out. The politicians were afraid that funding would get back. So they imploded the big tunnel, firing 2000 physicists, high energy physicists, high energy and nuclear are pretty close. And so there's about 200 jobs each year in nuclear physics. There's 2000 people that needed jobs. You don't have to be that good of a mathematician to realize we've got a problem. About that time, my first wife, she was pregnant. She was about to have a kid. She wanted to be back by her mama back here in Memphis. So she's like, I'm going to Memphis. Your kid's going to Memphis. You can do what you want. So I'm looking at a career that has no job opportunities and what's going to be an impending divorce if I don't make a career change. And I'm like, yeah. I think I'll head back to Memphis with you. You know, so I gave up my, my fellowship. I got my master's. They gave me a master's degree. You know, I was way past yeah, that was easy. So got my master's degree, came back to Memphis, and I planned on changing from nuclear theory to nuclear medicine. So that was my plan. Um, a thing called TenCare went through. Politics, again, gets me in the nip, nips me in the bud. And that winds up creating a freeze on hiring. So instead of going to work for these, thing, these guys, I started to um, visit with them and kind of do some more interviews and kind of wait to get hired and wait to work on my PhD on that level. Um, when I started working with those places, I quickly learned those people were dying. You know, the people that are getting radiation therapy. It was kind of sad. And I don't know if you can tell this about me, but I'm really not a sad guy. You know what yeah, I mean? And, no. You know, seeing people, looking people in the eye, knowing they're going through a lot of trouble every day. Generally, like in the racing world, people don't die when I make a mistake. And if I do make a mistake, they don't die. If they, I don't make a mistake, they don't die. They just aren't dying all the time. You know, <laughs> yeah. kind of a downer when they are. Um, so what happened is, is I wound up back here. So I've got, a, I've got a wife, I've got a kid, I've got a master's degree, I've got no job, and I'm in Memphis. So I start going through the paper, and there was this job for this tech office job at Comp Cams. And... I'd had a comp cam back when I was in, in undergrad, I actually daily drove a Jeep that had a small block Chevy swapped into it. And I ran it in the stock V8 classes. In oh the my gosh. How I got a Jeep with a distributor that was on the firewall instead of on the front through tech, you know, it was just a, you know, I don't know, you know, you just had that kind of rules thing. Yeah. It's a yep. three, whatever AMC it wasn't a 304 anything AMC it was a 350 Chevy you know but it got <laughs> right um so I started working it so I took the job and you know you can imagine the interview thing they're like you have a master's degree in physics yeah you want to work at a tech office yeah I'm just you know like okay like listen my wife and kid are here I'm gonna be here <laughs> <laughs> right I didn't tell them that but it's like you know hey I'm thinking about this and you know so it's weird. I, I started in the tech office, which is kind of like our lowest entry level deal. Um, I was there for a year, but you could tell even before that they had me planned on different things. Um, I started go, going down to Daytona Beach and spending a lot of time with Harvey Crane. And he and Scooter Brothers are my two mentors. You know, they really took me under their wing. Harvey loved me for whatever reason, you know. Um, he loved math and curves and all that. He just thought it was cool that I was like good at that. So he, he basically really, we spent a lot of time together. He'd been fired back from Crane and um, you know, he had 49% of Crane cams and they, so as he's under 50, 
Gina's came out the door. Um, so I started working with Harvey and, you know, you know, so I was supposed to do the Briggs cams for comp. You know, I mean, they're like, we're going to do Briggs. You do the Briggs cams. This other guy will do everything else. Well, the other guy got a little concerned or worried or just wanted to leave or whatever. A lot of people think I intimidated him, but who knows. But he said before I got too good, he was going to quit. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, you have to understand it's like the, they had the guy that was supposed to do Briggs cams, this, this young kid. You know, I was 24, 25. It's like – I remember Scooter, it was kind of like the, um, he was going off to like one of the trade shows. It was like watching a, a, a dad hand the keys to a 63 split window Corvette to his high school senior and saying, now son, I'm gone. I'm going to let you drive the car. Don't wreck it. <laughs> so basically, I was over cam design at Comp Cams at 25 years old with years oh, wow. as could be. And like the like the first couple of guys I started working with was um, you know a guy named Spinny Clendenin at, at at Richard Childress Racing. Really, he took to me. A guy named Ernie Elliott. He really took to me. Um, you know, so that was Bill Elliott, was Dale Earnhardt, right? You know, yeah. And, and um, you know, the Mike Eggy was doing the stuff for the two car. He was doing Chad Little's Bush car. And then he got hired by Penske to do the two car. And so I had, and then there was this guy who worked at comp before I did, who had gone back to work for his dad, um, young man named Doug. And he, he started working on the engine development at his dad's place. And of course that's Doug Yates. And, you know, like all of a sudden I went from doing Briggs cams to, to I'm talking every day to the four top NASCAR teams in the U S and oh my goodness, I, I did bad things, but we run with a lot of races too. You know, there was a lot, of, <laughs> but you know, there was, some, so, I mean, that's sort of my start. You couldn't have planned it out any way. Any no way. way. That's awesome. You know, so, you know, Bill, you know, John Lingenfelter, Bill Jenkins, Bob Glidden, all these are guys are calling and fussing at me, yelling at me. And, you know, man, you hadn't been cussed, you've been cussed by Bob or Grumpy, but you know, they, they, <laughs> at it but they're good guys and, and all of a sudden you start realizing that all these people that are our icons they're real human beings they're real they're just dudes they're yep. dudes who've done some cool stuff they're dudes that have incredibly the work ethic is amazing but they're not they're not superhuman they're not anything they're just awesome dudes well and i say this a bunch uh to younger folks uh, like car guys, or guys doesn't matter. Yeah. It is I got a cat here jumping up on the table. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm at the. Um, so if he comes back into the shot, you'll know what I'm doing. No, right that's now. that's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but I try to explain to like 20 year old car guys. I'm like, listen, the thing is, like a 60 year old car guy is still a car guy. He just has had different experiences with his cars. You know, he's, he's a different setup, different generation, uh, different process, you know, and a lot of times after they get it, you'll see like a group of 50 year old guys and a group of 20 year old guys, same group. They're all talking the same cars. That's what I love about car stuff. Yeah. They're, they're the passion too. You know, there's, there's older car guys, but there's not old car guys. Right. You know? Yeah. One of my one of my good friends is is Ed Pink, and if any of your your listeners want to look up somebody, 
who's who's really just a cool guy. If you start Googling and start searching Ed Pink, you're gonna first think there's like eight Ed Pinks. There's like, oh, there's this Ed Pink that did top fuel stuff back in the 50s. <laughs> that's Ed Pink. Well, there's this IndyCar Ed Pink. Well, yeah, that's Ed Pink. No, old IndyCar Ed Pink. Yeah, that Ed Pink. Yeah, but the IndyCar guy who did for Infinity program. Yeah, that's Ed Pink. Well, this midget guy who did these midget engines, you know, for sprint cars. At, uh, the Toyota sprint car stuff. Yeah. How about this guy who did this drifter thing, you know, for, for Toyota? Yeah. You know. Wow. He's about to celebrate his 90th birthday. And Ed has the passion today that any of your young guys have. He loves it. You know, that's awesome. You know, maybe there's, you know, there's a little bit, a little bit harder for him to communicate at his age, but yet his mind is sharp as a tack and his passion is over the top and he loves everything he does. Um, I sat down and had breakfast a couple of years ago with um, Ed Iskadarian and Ed sees engines and stuff. You know, like I grew up with all these amazing tools. You know, we have Spintrons, we have lasers, we have data acquisition, we have high-speed video. You know, we can wire up a, a cell, test cell like it's Darth Vader's bathroom. I mean, there's more wires coming out of there than you think is coming out of the space shuttle, right? Um, and we can do cool things. But this older generation, they had to do it all in their mind. And sit down and talk to Ed, and he's just an amazing guy, and he's celebrating his 100th birthday coming up. So, you know if you ever, if you get the bug and you get bit by this motorsports virus and it drives into you, you will never grow old. You probably are going to kill over because we all do at some point, but you'll kill over a hundred year old dude or a 50 year old dude, but you'll be a young dude that just yep. turned age. You know, it's, you'll still have the passion of a young man. It's yep. fun. And, and the neat thing about uh, car stuff in my mind is it's always evolving. Like mm -hmm. if you had told somebody 20 years ago that V6 engines were going to make 300 plus horsepower, they'd have laughed in your face and now it's normal. No, it, it's, it's, it's amazing because one of my buddies, um, Aaron Miller just did a thing on Facebook where he has a Viper that just put 3000 horsepower to a hub dyno. 3000 horsepower for a V10 Viper. I mean, 10 years ago, making 1,000 or 1,200 was a huge, huge undertaking. Two or three years ago, 3,000 would have qualified you number one in a pro mod race. You know, so yes, everything's super evolving. At the same time, whenever any one thing changes, like in, like, you know, we went back, started with my, my valve train title, right? Every time a valve spring changes, that means you can change the cam profile. When the cam profile and the valve spring change, you might be able to change the rocker ratio. So air rocker arm geometry or the rocker system, every component lets you re-optimize every other component. Wow. So if you make one little benefit way. here, they just stack up and there's just these huge, and that's why you see this amazing performance that, you know, everybody goes the golden age of hot rodding. It's like, my goodness, if this isn't the golden age of hot riding, what is? Yeah, I don't know because it's yeah. amazing right now. Right. There is such – there there the durability you can get, the the parts you can get for most of the applications, 
the aftermarket growing up and becoming more like, you know, real folks. I mean, I realized there was like a hydrogen peroxide rocker that mounted, I mean, rocket that mounted on a differential back in the 50s. <laughs> if you ever wanted to test your religious faith, you'd probably like this thing because there's no throttle. You know, it's like, ah, we're going. <laughs> you know, how far are you going? Until it runs out of fuel. You know, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but no, there was certainly been spurts that have been awesome throughout the whole thing. But as far as technology to the masses at price points that everybody can get involved in, there's never been a better time. Yeah, I'll agree. So that, that leads me into a question. So I asked Aaron Mick, who mm-hmm. I, I mentioned on the podcast, probably every time I'm talking to somebody. Yeah. Uh, so I asked him if you guys ever get like engine platforms early. Yeah. Like, and he said sometimes, and he said, he actually told a story um, about you guys renting a car and <laughs> disassembling it and taking it back to the rental car company. So I thought that was pretty funny. So th- that leads me to uh, <clears throat> which new engine platforms are most interesting to you? Man, everything, everything is so good now. Um, you know, we're fortunate enough, just like everything in the world, relationships are probably more important than anything. You know, if you told me to, Billy, you've got to give up half of your IQ or half your contacts. I know I could be more successful if I just gave up the IQ and kept the contacts, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know man, I don't know if I can tell you how deep those contacts run, but there's a good chance that we know about what engines are going to come out well before they come out. And, um, you know, SEMA is wonderful in that as soon as they're on the dealer's lot, we can get a lot of the prints of the internal side. But there's probably rumors and things being said and just little, you know, just little talks like we're having right now that you're on the phone with somebody and, oh, this is going to come, this is kind of cool, but you can't say anything, you know. (laughs) There's some awfully, awfully cool things going out. Um, You know, right now, I am terribly in love with all of the engines that are out in the performance world right now. Um, you know, the GM LS has been probably the most successful engine across every different form of motorsports you could imagine. Yeah. That there's ever been, you know, my goodness, that, that, that platform is so good, but really the LT port, and the block are both better. You know what I mean? Like if you look at the new motor, okay, the port's better, the block's better. Do we have a couple things to figure out? Absolutely. Does it present new challenges? Sure. Is DI easy? No, but it's not hard. You know, we've been doing DI for 24-hour racing, going back to the Jaguar days and the 24-hour Le Mans. So we've got 20 year, 15, 20 years of DI. Mm-hmm. So that's nothing new. Um, I don't know, but then as good as the LSLT is, um, you know, I used to think that the four liter BMW motor that came out in that M3 for a few years was probably the coolest V8 on the planet. And if you just, if, if you were to um, share some East Tennessee product with me and we were to sip it and you were to ask me, Billy, how is the Coyote, the current Coyote, not as good as that that BMW M34 liter? I got nothing. 
I mean, <laughs> right. as good as that BMW motor was for a dual overhead cam, compact, really nice. Um, and that Coyote might be better, you know, the, um, add to that, the, the, the Hemi, I mean, my daily driver is, is a Dodge truck with a Stroker Hemi in it. And that thing is just stupid fun. Um, and we'll, know, we'll tow anything you need it to. Right. The people will argue about whether, you know, you know, how much of that is from a GM six cylinder project where the port was laid out and everything like that. And how much of it, you know, and I'm like, well, if GM fired the engineer who developed the good port and Chrysler hired them. Does that make GM or Chrysler that, you know, <laughs> who would you rather be the really smart guy trained him or the really smart guys who hired him? But regardless of, of who's responsible for the Hemi combustion chamber with the dual plugs and the large valve and everything like that, that's a superb architecture. And what they do with the block by moving the cam way high, everything about the Hemi, that's an amazing engine. And I mean, goodness, we, we did some testing on it recently, put a blower on there. I mean, that thing makes 900 horsepower with the blower so easy that it just makes you laugh, you know? That's crazy. Right. And a the new 6.4 Apache, like the 5.7 Eagle engine with the raised port and everything, is probably a very similar engine quality-wise to an LS3 as far as power you can make with everything. And the 6.4, I mean, that thing's somewhere between an LS3 and a, and a LS7. You know, it's probably That's got... That's awesome. LS7. Then it has the active intake manifold with the short and long runner. Man, you can't, I mean, picking a favorite between the three major domestic V8s is just like asking me to pick a favorite between my three kids. <laughs> they are all unique, but they are all amazing. And the, the quality of parts out there, the quality of platform yep. is amazing. And I can't wait till the new Corvette engine comes out, you know, so the 5.5 liter, that thing's going to be in the Z06. It's going to be a beast too. So, oh yeah, there is yes. there is the, what's being made today is so amazingly good. It's just hard to put words to. Well, and what's great that I've seen in the last you know 15 years is the ability for aftermarket manufacturers to develop parts quickly and yes. uh, cost effectively. Right, SEMA has changed everything. Like when I first started we couldn't get any prints. So if you wanted to get prints, you had to like sneak in to GM at night with a buddy and try to run the copy machine, right? You know, um, those days are over. The OEs understand through SEMA how important it is for the aftermarket to support their vehicles. So like now, instead of having to guess the size range of a part, we can get a lot of the prints. So we know that this journal is supposed to be this size to that size and you know, so knowing those, not just being able to buy a part and try to reverse engineer it, but to look at the prints and know what the tolerance range is on it, um, we can make, I mean, you've seen in everything from floor mats to headlights that aftermarket parts fit right now. Mm -hmm. Inside the engine, it's even a bigger deal. What we're able to make now is just so much better than what we're able to make. Plus manufacturing is just so much, I mean, material sciences are growing by leaps and bounds. Manufacturing is growing by leaps and bounds. The partnerships with the OEs through SEMA. I can't say enough good, I, your, your listeners not, might not know about the Special Equipment Manufacturers Association, but they, that's SEMA, that you probably heard the SEMA show where they, yep. it's a car show, right? You know, that SEMA's organization does a lot of cool things. And one of the biggest, coolest things they do 
is they support us legally versus, you know, some regulation that we believe is overhanded, but they also support the relationships between us and the OE. So they've been a huge part in what makes product so much better, cheaper, less headaches, more trust. They, they do a tremendous job. Well, and that's one thing a lot of folks don't know. They just hear the SEMA show every year and just like, they don't even know what SEMA stands for. So, right. so that right. was a great explanation. Yeah, SEMA isn't a hot rod show. It's a great organization that throws on a pretty cool hot rod show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. Without it, our industry wouldn't be where it is today. So let's let's dig in a little bit here. I've got some some questions from folks, and uh, yeah. so uh, Mike Lau of Mike Lau Racing Engines asked uh, if you'd explain the differences in lobe design uh, for solid roller versus hydraulic camshafts. Well, you know, if you go back 30 years, there's a tremendous difference because the hydraulics, we thought that hydraulics were almost infinitely stiff. And we knew we wanted these big lash ramps because people like to run 36,000 slash, you know. So, I mean, you didn't have, you'd need a feeler gauge. You could take pocket change and run <laughs> up tip and the rocker arm for clearance. So these camshafts would have 50 degree lash ramps on both sides of it as it gradually took, a, oh yeah. And I mean, you know, and however much lash ramp you put in it, you'd have guys like John Lingenfelter um, who would run more. Like you design one for 30 and run 50 on it. And I remember as we started to get in the tight lash world, my good friend Gordon Holloway is the best, best cam salesman there's ever been. So Gordon comes in my office and he goes, hey, John wants to know how much lash to run on that new design that you had. He's got it on the dyno now. I said, well, Gordon, he needs to run negative 15. <laughs> he goes, negative 15? How in the heck do you say negative? How do you do negative 15? What's that even mean? I said, Gordon, I don't know, but every number I tell you, you add 30 to it. So I figured if I wanted you to run 15, I'd tell you negative 15, and at least you'd start <laughs> tight. You know, instead of, yeah. um, so I guess I say that by saying, if you go back 30 years, there's a huge difference. But what we've learned today is that the hydraulics have, because of the small air bubbles, the aeration in the oil in the high pressure chamber, and the valving kind of opening and closing to fill that chamber and everything, that there's a little bit of cush in that piston inside that hydraulic lifter. So as soon as you push on the lifter, that little piston in there, that seat, it moves a little bit. It sets down a little bit. And most people would say that movement's about four to 6,000 slash effective. Then you have the bearing and the rocker arm and the seat and everything, and that all compresses a little bit. So even a, a tight a hydraulic really acts like it's got 12,000 or so lash in it. So you start looking at some of the newer tight lash designs in the you know, solid oars designed around 16 lash, and you look at these hydraulics that you know they're kind of smushy and they're designed for like 12 lash, there's some new loads that really blur the line between what's a hydraulic design, what's a solid design. They've totally, as tight lashes come in, as we start to understand hydraulics more and more, the differences have, there's still a difference. There's still, you know, a hydraulic still designed for like four to 12,000 slash, and a solid is still designed for like 12 to 24 lash. But they're coming together more. Now it's more about lift and RPM range. You know, there's not many one-inch hydraulic rollers that go 10,000 RPM. So, you know, that the, 
the lift and RPM change things more than the even lifter at this point, or as much. Right, and so he uh, he laughed when he asked this too. When he told me to ask you this, and he said, uh, "He said valve springs now versus uh -huh. valve springs twenty five years ago." <laughs> I mean, you have to understand. There was a few like the the Vasco Jet or whatever they were, the H eleven tool steel springs, and I mean these things they would break. There was a few big big wire race springs out there. But they were triple springs, and they, you know, the box of them said must team lift. They're super heavy, super big. The wire's cruddy. They break like you if you even look at them funny. And then today, the wire is a super clean material that people couldn't have even thought about, you know, 20 years ago. And so, I mean, you have to understand there was one year, if, people, if your listeners will look up the Kobe earthquake, there was an earthquake in Kobe, Japan. And this earthquake stopped the production of the spring wire we used for our 927, 943 springs back in the back in the late 90s, and um, it almost shut NASCAR down because there's no other place other than Kobe, Japan, that made this grade of wire, and every valve train was built around this grade of wire. You know, so oh man, so yeah, I mean. It's it's amazing, you know, like, yeah, he deserved to laugh on that. Yes, the springs then, we were, you know, we would just get our hands on, like, some guy rummaging through the junkyard trying to put something together. We would grab hold of anything that we get got that almost worked. And today, we're going in and we're special ordering the wire, the pitch profile, the loads, the processing, everything about the valve spring, and, and they're just wow. so Today you see springs that are, you know, back in the early, back when DEI was running, running in Cup, you know, the DEI engines before they merged with ECR, um, Earnhardt Childress Racing. Um, before that merger happened, DEI had a spring that was about 140 pounds on the seat that would run over 10,000 RPM, you know. Real light, really, really cool parts and everything like that. So, yeah, you can get by with a whole lot. And you're seeing that throughout motorsports, that lighter springs, lighter valve train, much better wire. Everything is just grown in leaps and bounds. And what's funny is some of those old springs, people still love them. But, man, there's, there's just so much better today than those big, heavy, you know, uh, okay, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. So uh, Robert Lee owns a, a speed shop in Salem Springs here close to me. He, uh -huh. he wants to know, what's the biggest difference between naturally aspirated and a turbo cam? You know, okay, a lot of times you'll hear people say every cam's a blower cam or every cam's a turbo cam or anything like that. And, and there's like this ounce of truth in there that – 90% of the things we do when we do go for nitrous or blowers or turbo has to do more with tailoring the torque curve for the application than it does for the actual boost that's in it. To give an eye, for instance, say we put a, um, a three liter blower, three liter ish blower on LS, or we hit it with, you know, 250, 300 horsepower nitrous. Either one of those is going to, to put a pile of torque down low. You know, mm -hmm. that blower or that nitrous, 
you know, is going that that 300 horsepower with the nitrous is going to put 500 foot pounds into the bottom end of it. Same thing with that big blower; it's going to make the boost just like that, and mm -hmm. it's all this torque to the bottom. But what happens with that torque? If if by chance you have enough tire, you know, you've got some super drag slick radial thing, and you've got the best four link to ever, and you absolutely hook it. Well, all you're going to do is stand the thing up on the back bumper and get one of those nice, you know, one of those, remember that old Forester advertisement where it showed the bottom of the car, you know, right before it breaks the oil pan? Yeah, I mean, yeah. great shot. You're going to have a bunch of broken parts. Um, so in some of those applications, we'll put more exhaust and spread the lobe separation out, put a little more duration to it. We'll tweak the specs of the camshafts to lose 30 or 40 foot-pounds down low but gain 20 or 30 horsepower up top. Now compare that to an NA application, you would never give up 30 or 40 foot pounds down low because you're not traction limited. You can hook that. Yep. Where on the blower or the, or the nitrous, you may, and even some of the turbos, you may give up some of the low end to try to get some up high. Now that's the normal, that's the support of every cam's of lower cam that we're just tailoring it. Here's the not support of it. There are two applications where you really have to be careful. One is when your compressor size is limited. Like you take NHRA factory shootout, those cams look very, very special. And the reason is, is they have a smallish blower. The blower compressor map, if you look at it, you go, okay, well this thing needs, this thing can move about 1200 horsepower worth of air. Then you look at how fast the class is going, you go, I need to make about 1200 horsepower. How do you make 1200 horsepower? You can't like keep a lot of overlap in something and blow 500 horsepower through the cylinder and make 1200 horsepower with the 1200 horsepower blower. It becomes a lot like restrictor plate racing. You have to be able to capture every bit of the air that that blower supplies. So the specs get really weird on that. Same deal if it's a limited turbo with a smaller compressor, you have to be really careful with that. The other thing is if you have a, um, a lot of back pressure to boost, where like a salmon, it wants to go upstream instead of, you know, it wants the exhaust the intake valve that overlap. So there's definitely some places where, where we have to be very, very cognizant of the special requirements of a limited compressor or some weird boost to back pressure where air is going to do weird things during overlap. But in general, for a given RPM, the intake closing doesn't change a whole lot based on boost. Doesn't change at all based on the nitrous oxide. The exhaust opening, because you're making a lot more or a lot less, it may move very slightly, and the overlap is very sensitive on the application. So even if all the specs start to look the same, it's really because you're looking at intake closing, you're looking at exhaust opening, you're looking at overlap, and then you're selecting around that but you have to keep into mind the traction limits or the application specifics. So a lot of times you're doing blower cams, you're really tailoring it for the application. And that makes sense. And then, so when, like if, if you're building a class car, mm -hmm. you guys need to know that going into it. Oh, absolutely. Like just saying, yeah, I want a max effort five, three, and I'm gonna run in this class sometimes, that may be a completely different cam setup or like a, I would imagine just a drag only car or like I'm a, it's going to see some street miles. 
Right, like on the a drag only card, you don't have to worry anything about idle stability, right? You know, you just go, dude, if it can't get through the pitch, you push, you know, like, I'm sorry, I figure it out, you know. Um, but on a streetcar, if you go like, hey, I'm gonna pick up my kids at kindergarten, you know, like the power brakes have to work three or four times, right? You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> you have to know these things. And there's definitely in between, you know, stuff that's not drag only and not picking up the kids in the car rider line at kindergarten, you know? And so you figure out where and there, and that's a lot about your idle characteristics. So you have to be careful about that. Like you mentioned blowers, blowers because the rotors are in that, in that airstream, they don't get as weird about big overlap numbers. You know, they dampen when that exhaust tries to go back and put a big pulse, it dampens that out. So that's why blowers often, you see bigger spec cams on the street because they don't have the idle, you know, issues that a normal That makes sense. Well, so there's all kinds, that's why people ask you about gear ratio and transmission, you know, they're like, why does the engine care what gear ratio I have in my car is? Well, what we're really asking when, when a cam guy asks you all these questions about your application, after first he asks you a bunch of questions about his engine, your engine. He's trying to figure out what's the engine. Then the next thing he, a good guy will ask you is all about your application. You know? And what he's really doing is trying to figure out, you may have told him you're gonna be an 8,000 RPM guy, but when you tell him you have 273 gears and 32 inch tall tires, you know, he knows that you're not, you know, <laughs> RPM guy. You're going to be on the expressway at 2200 RPM. You know, so, you know, a lot of that's figuring out what, how do I need to tailor that torque curve? Just like we talked about before, how do I tailor the torque curve for the individual vehicle engine combination specific to kind of custom fit it? You know, a camshaft, unlike most parts in the engine, a camshaft is called the heart of the mind of a performance engine. In a lot of ways, it's like a conductor. You know, a conductor in an orchestra could, you could have 10 different conductors playing the same symphony from Beethoven. And they sound different because one guy emphasizes others and does a little difference with the timing and everything like that. It's very unique. They'll say the conductors are really important. Very much like the conductor in a symphony, the camshaft is trying to take all the different components in the engine and time the valves so that it moves the air the right way to operate in the RPM band that you want to operate. So it's the coach, it's calling the plays. It's not the lead violinist and it's not the tight end that's running the play. You know, it's trying yeah. to what's everything doing? And how do I make how do I make these parts work together just like a good coach? How do I make these players play the best together? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, one one question that, that I'm reading here uh, from Ryan Mueller, Mueller Performance. Mm -hmm. He said, do you prefer to change the amount of overlap based on fuels used, like race gas versus methanol? You know, that's a really interesting one. Generally, I don't play a lot with overlap based on fuel used. Normally, if you go from race gas to methanol, your biggest difference from the camshaft point of view is the methanol takes up so much volume in the intake port that it makes your 360 CFM head act like it's a 345 CFM head. It makes the port act a little smaller, so you get a little more velocity into it. Now, if you change compression again, compression will add to the low end and maybe hurt the top end a little bit, so that'd make you wanna go bigger too. So, you know, you may call up and go, well, hey, Billy, I called, Aaron on your tech on, you know, to get a camshaft. 
And when I told him I was changing over from race gas to alcohol, he put four more degrees of camshaft in it and tightened up the lobe separation. And you're going, well, yeah, he did that because he was assuming you had more compression and now your cylinder head wasn't quite as good. Mm -hmm. So primarily we're treating engines like they're air pumps and hoping somebody else figured out how to put the right amount of fuel and spark the spark plug at the right time. So we're, whether it's diesel, natural gas, alcohol, nitromethane, anything like that, at least as far as the overlap triangle and the intake closing are are concerned, we're thinking air pump. But like you said with alcohol, it takes up so much volume that it generally makes the port act worse and you generally would run more compression with it. So, yeah. Man, there's so much involved in this. Like it's, yeah. it's but a, think about it. It's air pump first, fuel second. Yeah. 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 Like we'll do a different load for natural gas because we know valve seat erosion is really bad in those motors because you don't get the lubricity of the, of the petroleum based fuel. You know, so there are some <sighs> things that we know to work on. Dude, this is 25 years of doing this. this is, yeah. <laughs> I promise yeah. I didn't walk in off the street and go, yeah. Yeah. Here we go. Let's do this. Here we go. Let's think about alcohol versus no. Um, well, and I think that's, what's great about having um, a guy that has done it as long and is as uh, in depth with it as you are is because like you can, you can help some folks understand. I mean, these guys are like, you know, they, they build cars all the time and engines all the time. And I mean, they're asking these questions. So I think no, they do amazing things, but know that when we change something for, for, for alcohol, when we change something for alcohol, we're changing it because of how the alcohol changes the port first. And we may do a little bit with exhaust opening based on the burn rate of the fuel. You know, so there's wow. little bitty tweaks based on burn rate to exhaust opening, intake closing. But the overlap and intake closing, they're more about what happened to the port than anything else. Because if you trap the most pressure in the cylinder, it's going to release the most power. You know what I mean? So we're every air molecule that you can into that chamber, trapping it in there, and then hope somebody had the right number of, you know, I've always joked about combustion chambers being like an eighth grade dance. You know, you've got boys and girls in there you got to get them mixed together and you got to get the right music going. So if you really think about it, you know, that way, boys are easy. They're the fuel, you know, so, you know, <laughs> stick them in there. The music is the spark, getting the girls in the oxygen. How do we get oxygen into the chamber? That's the hard part. And that's really what the camshafts, that's, that's what we're doing with the thing. We're trying to get the girls started soon enough and trap as many girls in there before we close the door and play the music. That makes sense to me. I mean, that's a, that's a great example. So I, I, we've, we've gone long here and I, I don't want to keep you cause I, I want to have you back. I want to have, I want to do like a, like a 2.0 and let some folks that I want to let some folks listen to this and then, uh, then ask some questions. So, but I had one more question from one, from one guy. So Jonathan Stonecipher said, uh-huh. And this is a good one. This is probably your earlier days. He said, how often do people want to give their own cam specs and that be something you know won't work? (laughs) Oh, you know, he's, this is a great setup because it used to be these like little desktop, you know, people were really into computers back in the nineties and early two thousands. 
and then you get a thing and the computer would say it had to be this exact duration, you know, not one degree bigger, not one degree smaller, and this exact lobe lift. And, you know, back to Gordon again, who basically trained, that's, that Gordon in a lot of ways is Aaron's and my mentor, right? So Gordon would go, yeah, we, we can do that. It's going to cost you a lot of money. He goes, but I just want you to know right now, when this doesn't run, and it's not going to, we're not giving you your money back for the camshaft. And we don't want you to be mad at us. Go to somebody else to buy the right cam. So if when you buy the right cam, when you call asking what cam you should want, we want that to be us. So, you know, if you want to call somebody else and get this cam, and then you call us for the real cam, but we'd love to sell you both cams, you know. Yeah. But I'll be the last cam. I can just tell you that. The guy go, well, how do you know I'm using a computer program? Because like, I deal with all the best engine builders in the world. John Lingenfelder never came back and said I wanted something within one degree. You know, I get something <laughs> within about four degrees of this, you know, 20 thousandths lift of here, you know what I mean? You know, mm -hmm. the best engine builders know that those last little, but these computer programs are like, boom. So, yeah, that, that's, that's, I mean, that's so common. And the thing is, is like, you just tell them the cooks in the kitchen, right? You know, we can either tell you, you know, you know, there was this place that you could get steaks in town um, and you could either cook the steak or you could order the cook the, the steak cooked the way you want. It's called the butcher shop, right? What you couldn't do was cook your steak and fuss about how it was cooked. <laughs> so That's a great way to explain it. So I am glad somebody can buy any steak they want here. We'll cook it for them or they can cook it themselves. But if you cook it yourself, don't complain about when it's burnt. <laughs> There you go. That's the best way to put it. So, uh, for since the Edelbrock uh, yeah. merge, right? Because it wasn't a, it was like a merge. So, uh, Aaron kind of talked a little bit about it. Um, what is what is your feeling on that? How will that expand uh, y'all's offerings, and how will that help uh, you get more involved with more stuff? No, I think it's I think it's going to be great. You know, what's funny is is that um, you know. Today's my 13th anniversary. So when I got married 13 years ago, I had three kids and my wife had two kids. So now we have five kids and they call that a blended family. It's at first, it's not a blended family. It's two families living under one roof. Think, look at those, <laughs> those guys are a bunch of weirdies. You know, <laughs> y'all are weird. No, y'all are weird. Okay. We're all weird. Okay. And and you think that's going to take about six months, you know, to get over. About six years into it, we really, really gelled as a family, and now we love each other. Everything's like we thought it would be after a couple of years. Now, after 13 years, it's like we thought it'd be after a couple of years. So, um, you know, the one thing is Edelbrock brings so much to the table. Comp brings so much to the table. There's so many wonderful products and stuff. There's going to be things that make this, this working together and being one company it's going to be awesome. There's going to be some things where we look at each other and go, you're a weirdy. You know what I mean? You're just weird. And, you know, people who run it go, oh, it's going to be all one big happy company in six months. Yeah, right. I <laughs> nope. Weird. You know, I, I've got the t-shirt. I'll tell you how that works. But, <laughs> but there's some super strengths. There's um, the amazing people and everything. And what we have to do as a company is just to work to take the strengths of both companies and not lose track of what makes us great. 
and where one of us does a better job of something, we got to admit it and go thing. And I think, I think it's actually easier with companies than it is with families. So hopefully, I'll yeah, years from now, going, yeah, it took us about six years. Hopefully, <laughs> you know, in two or three years, but it's probably not going to be two or three months. That's right. So uh, one thing I completely missed over is your project car. Yeah, you have a you have a fun car. Let's let's talk about it real quick, and then I promise I'll let you go. Oh, you're not you're not bothering me. Um, yeah, I don't know. See, well, my my youngest son, I want he's an engineer, and I wanted him to be in Formula SAE. Well, the schools he want that wanted to give him the most money didn't do FSAE these little road race cars. Mm-hmm. So heck, instead of buying one for the school, why don't we just make one? You make a road race car. And so I always thought it'd be funny. I looked through the rules of chump car and I thought it'd be funny to just take, cause it was the, the cost of the engine out versus the cost of the engine in. And I'm like, Oh, I'm going to kill this thing. I'm going to buy a BMW three series for like 500 bucks and put a five, three liter GM motor in there, which costs less. And I'm going to be cheaper than I would with the standard engine and transmission by putting this GM stuff in there. Um, well, clearly that, that's been a five year, um, they changed the rules. So now I'm in the experimental class. So I can oh, do all nice. crazy things. I, I burn up two or three engines because of um, the little car hooks better than it should. I told, told myself I was never gonna buy a convertible, never gonna buy automatic. I bought an automatic convertible. Today, <laughs> today it's got a, um, it's got a really nice LS that makes more power than I'll, I'll ever admit knowingly. Um, hooked up to a four-speed Jericho. That if you look at the Jericho, it's actually got RCR 1999 on it. So if you think about that, this this transmission is worth more than the car, and has had a guy in it that can shift gears way better than I ever will in my wildest dream. So yeah. uh, um, even if it was Mike Skinner and not Earnhardt, you know, it's had some. But this thing's been driven by both of them. So. You know, it's just a it's just a super fun little project. We've got arrow in it, a dry sump in it. I'm putting an accumulator in there because the pickups for circle track and you know we have right hand turns, which the oil pump goes, hey, I'm not picking up anything. So you know, so we got an accumulator put in it. It's but it's just it's an absolute blast. And we'll go out there and play like on track days. And it's so funny with this having this five hundred dollar chump car that everybody knows is cheated so bad, it's not even funny. But right <laughs> buying a Porsche GT3 with all the aero and tires on it and keeping up with them with laps is kind of stupid fun, right? <laughs> oh, I agree 100%. And it sounds just, I mean, you know, like when we're doing, talking to Chuck Cross, talking to the rules guy, and I'm like, um, hey, you charge this many points for, uh, you know, this many laps or points for camshaft. I said, well, you know, I kind of have this religious thing where I have to have a camshaft. I said, I can do this one of two ways. I can lie to you and tell you it's a stock cam when it's not, and you won't be able to tell. Or I pay the points. But if I pay the points, John Force would nod an improvement when I crank this car. <laughs> Talking through it with experimental, we went ahead and just said pay the points. So, you know. So it's got a cam in it. So yeah, when 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 it's in my buddy's trailer and you hit the you hit the happy button to crank this thing up, and the quartermaster starter hits and it, you know, things got some compression. It's got some cam in it. Yeah, it it absolutely. 
Xbox. Everybody goes, whoa. The whole panic comes out to see what monster is coming out of this trailer. So <laughs> it's, and it's still got a tag on it. So I'll drive it to some events too. So local events. That's great. You know, it, it, it's, it's a stupid idea, but it is so much fun. <laughs> well, I think that pretty much sums up car guys. Yeah, right. This wasn't meant to be a wise thing. This was yeah. just meant to be stupid and fun. And it absolutely, awesome. it's absolutely stupid fun. That's awesome. So uh, last four questions here. I ask everybody, what is the fastest you've ever driven? I guess um, the rev limiter hits in my car now at about 168, 170. So hey, that's getting it. That's about going in. The thing is, when you're going 170 into a carousel turn that you know you be, need to be going 120 in, it feels a lot better to lift about 162, 165 than really <laughs> falling in there at about But I've hit the rev limiter, so I've gone 170 in the little car. But you know, I like your style. Yeah, but I'm really good with lifting at 162, 165. <laughs> That's awesome. So are you a uh, if you're working on an old car, are you a WD-40 or PB Blaster kind of guy? I like the WD-40 silicon. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, you know, a little bit off. <laughs> I got you. That's all right. No problem. And then are you a, uh, you a gloves or bare hands kind of, kind of tinker worker? My son gives me so much grief for having a brand new set of mechanics gloves he gave me sitting right next to me and reaching on the hot engine and doing something stupid. You know, so <laughs> I want to say I'm a gloves guy. My son, my Connor would tell you I am a bare hands guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And then the last one, and this will be interesting. Um, no budget doesn't matter. We're, we're building it at anything here. What is your dream car? You know, Will Rogers once said that he never met a horse he didn't like. And People ask me all the time, you know, what's your favorite car? It's like in my bio for, I'm a Formula SA judge. So in my bio, I put that my favorite car was the Panos Esperani GT mm. raced in GTLM. And I love that car because it's actually the father of the Thumper camps. Back when um, Yates was doing the, the, the engine development for Panos, this is before sequential transmission and all the buttons and everything like that. And the guys actually had to shift the car, shift the, the cars with a stick. Mm -hmm. And three in the morning, running around France, the drivers would not shift. So if a certain combination needed to come out of a corner in first, go to second, go up to third, go to fourth, they would probably just leave it in third, lug the snot out of it out of the corners, and then run it way past the red, the, where the red blender should have before it goes to the next one. Um, so to make it where it would do that, we took a lot of intake duration out. We've added some exhaust duration. We tightened up the lobe separation a ton and threw it way forward in the motor. And I was talking to a guy named Dennis Schoenfeld. I said, Dennis, this is going to, um, this early intake closing is going to really help your low end torque. And this early exhaust is going to get it where it just won't lay over so bad. So it'll just keep carrying. I said, it's not going to be great anywhere, but it'll be pretty good everywhere. <laughs> On the dyno, it did exactly what it said. Well, Billy, send me three or four of them. And I'm like, Dennis, 
hold on. You've got the engine, the practice, you've got the practice engine, the race day engine, and the backup engine. Why do you need four camshafts? He goes, oh, dude, you wouldn't believe how good this thing sounds. I'm going to stick in my old Ford pickup, another one in my old <laughs> This thing, everybody in the dyno. And so they unload this car at, in, in Paris, you know, for, for Le Mans for this thing. And they said every time they cranked, it looked, the car looked like a Batmobile. And every time it cranked up, everybody from the stands came down to watch this stupid thing come by because it just sounded so snotty. And this was five years before we ever did the thumper cams. You know, the thumper cams were kind of based on this camshaft. So I guess That's if awesome. I had, to, if I could have any car that I wanted to have, I mean, it, it would be some Ferrari Daytona or something like that. It might be the Porsche 917. It'd be something, something else. But as far as a car that, that that I just dearly, dearly love, you know, that short deck, you have to understand it's a short deck, like a shorter than a 302 deck, cup motor with this big billet oil pan that goes from rail to rail as a stress member of the chassis with suspension in it, stuck up in front of the driver with these baddest ass heads in the world that Robert Gates has come up with. This cool intake manifold, all this compression and this rowdy camshaft. And to me, that may in fact be the perfect race car. You know, that didn't win, awesome. didn't do all the good, but so the Esperante, you know, I guess will have to be my answer. That's great. So here's what I want to do. Yeah. I, I definitely want to have you back. I want yeah. to, uh, I, I appreciate you kind of going. I feel like we didn't go as deep as you, uh, as some of the folks, wanted me to but man i feel like on these first ones we've got to get some of your knowledge base it, it's hey look you dig. set the pace and everything know that i'm glad to come back on come up with some technical questions mm -hmm. we off the cuff or i can help you with before we're kind of give you an idea what we're going to do um but no i enjoy talking about it i hope i'm helpful to people listening you know i mean the most important thing i can say is that at comp cams we love what we do we don't want to grow up and get a real job. <laughs> yep. We need to buy a camshaft so we don't have to grow up. So <laughs> right. I urge you, whether you need a camshaft or not, buy a camshaft. But um, no, <laughs> I mean, we, we want people to have great experiences too. You know, people can, people can take up golf. You can take up any number of hobbies if you're not enjoying what you're doing in motorsports. So we want everybody to have as much fun at it as we yep. have. We love doing this. We don't want to grow up. Um, we want the passion to come through, but yet for your other listeners and the other people watching this that want to know about how can I do X, Y, or Z, I'd love to help them on the technical side as well. I think both of those are equally important. I don't think that you did wrong by emphasizing one over the other to start with. Well, perfect. Well, hey, I certainly appreciate the time that you've given us. I mean, I know you are a busy, busy guy and uh, <laughs> it's, it's well appreciated. I'll tell you that much. And well, Michael, thank you. I hope, I hope it was helpful. And if there's anything we can do for you guys, um, don't tell Aaron, but I think he's a heck of a guy. And oh, I won't. He has, he has a gift for what he does, which I've told him it's certainly not because he's smart or anything like that. You know, he just, you know, you're just consistently lucky. So that's gifted. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's but exactly right we've, we've got a bunch of great guys here we love doing this we want to help our customers and if we can do anything to help you 
and as you get the word out, as you educate people, um, we want to help you tell you more about comp cams and more about the products and more about how to help their, them with their projects do a better job. That's awesome. Well, hey, I certainly appreciate it. All right, Michael, hey. thank you so much. I hope, hey. hope you have a great day and thanks for having me on. Yeah. Hey, happy anniversary too. Thank you. 13 years. Woo! Man, hey, that's a big one. We, uh, my wife and I celebrated 11 in June and I know she's ready to kill me. So. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, that's the first 11 weeks, right? Maybe a little <laughs> lucky, but you know, after a while they're like, okay, you know, well, I don't know if he's right, but this one's mine. So I'm going to try the best I can with this. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. All I right, like so that, you know, so it wasn't a perfect race car, but you know, it had some personality. <laughs> right.